Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy bonus content, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and today I'd like to answer your questions. And joining me in doing this is the rest of the History That Doesn't Suck team that you don't usually get to hear from. So we have Joshua Beatty. Josh, want to say what's up? What's up, everybody? And we have Ciel Salazar. Ciel. Hey, guys. There you go. But we're going to go ahead and meet them a little bit more here. Uh, You probably know something about me if you listen to the preamble. If you didn't. Go back and listen to the preamble. I won't uh, bore you with my background again. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump over to Josh. We decided you would go first. Is that right? And yeah. as, as you're doing so, we decided to uh, help the people bond with you. Uh, we'll go ahead and answer whether or not we think we'd have been a patriot or a loyalist had we lived during the revolution. So just remember to get that in there. Perfect. What's up, everybody? My name is Joshua Beatty. Um, and I'm a 26-year-old who loves podcasting. And we're going to talk about that story a little bit of how Greg and I met, but I have a bachelor's degree from Utah Valley University in integrated studies, which is a interdisciplinary, which is a <laughs> interdisciplinary uh, degree. So both of my emphasis are religious studies and history. And that's kind of how I met Greg. Greg was one of my professors. And if I was a patriot or loyalist, it's pretty clear as we've been going through this this podcast, I'm a patriot for sure. Although I don't think I would have thrown my chips in until later during the revolution. I would have been a little bit uh, hesitant, waited to see how things went. So and, you, you'd have played it like Governor Morris. Yeah, exactly. Then. Yeah. We didn't talk about that, I think, explicitly in an episode, did we? No. Mm, no. Anyhow, no. so yeah, he... Uh, He's kind of wealthy, kind of wants to stick with the establishment initially, but then it becomes pretty clear it's hop on the Patriot train, not that there are trains yet, uh, but hop on that train or things are going to fall apart, get dicey. Smart guy gets on board and then, of course, ends up writing We the People and all that jazz. Yeah, so I'm fine being compared to Governor Morris in all (laughs) the ways. Uh, Except (laughs) I think you're a fan of having two legs. That's kind of nice, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of that, although I'm fine of being a fan of the other prolific things that he was known for too. So, and we'll take it to CL. CL. <laughs> Hi guys. I'm CL Salazar. I have a degree in history from Brigham Young University, a bachelor's degree in history from Brigham Young University. I have four kids. They are fantastic, but in my spare time, I'm passionate about history and I help with background research here on history that doesn't suck. And I love it and all of its nerdy goodness. And I hope that you guys are loving listening to all of the fun facts that we're coming up with for you. Uh, Josh talked about whether he'd be a patriot or loyalist. And I've thought about this too. I think I'd be a patriot. I like the rules and I'm a law-abiding citizen, but I only keep rules with which I agree. So I'm pretty sure that when the British started throwing down a bunch of taxes on things that my husband made a living on, I would be buying petitions and signing petitions and joining all kinds of societies. And I see you as a pamphleteer. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure I would be writing the pamphlets. Oh, come on. Like, uh, um, Mercy Otis. There you go. Yeah, right. I think Come I'd on. be buying 10 copies of Mercy Otis's and pamphlets and taking them to my quilting circle. Nice. Definitely. Yes, nice. and telling all of my friends. I like that you've thought this through to the point that you have a quilting circle. Oh, I'd have a quilting circle. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, I. Uh, as for me, I think, not to, not to bandwagon here, 
I think I'd end up uh, being a patriot. Uh, I'll base that partly on family history. Uh, the Buntings back in Pennsylvania are somewhere in my family tree. And uh, I mentioned I am distantly related to uh, to Deborah Sampson as well. Uh, you know, so as I just think about where would I be situated socioeconomically, I'm thinking I'm poor. Well, I know I come from not money northerners. <laughs> and I think I probably would have gone along with the fam is my guess. And kind of like what you're saying, CL, I, I don't I'm not a rebel without a cause, but rules have to make sense. Or, oh, of course. Yes. Or I do not, uh, <clears throat> I'm not happy. So just thinking that if I lived in the colonies, I would have the same understanding of what's constitutional, what isn't as my neighbors, most likely. Right. I'm sure I'd be like, what the hell? Screw this parliament. You can't tax. Step off. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what I'd be saying to all of my neighbors and convincing them to please join the cause. Come with us. So We'll, we'll throw some tea in the harbor. So, so you'd be jumping right in. What where Josh would be hanging back like, I don't know. Well, let's see who's going to win first. Yeah, I guess I'm just more <laughs> skeptical that it's hard to place yourself back in history, oh, right? Oh, dude, of course Especially it is. for where you stand in, like, class, right? Everyone likes to think, you know, when they romanticize and think about the past. Oh, I totally would have been a patriot. Been on, I would have been the first one mm-hmm. to pick up a musket and head out yeah, there. And, exactly. But you really don't know. No, you don't. And and that that's the real truth of the matter. Um, I'd, I'd say, honestly, a pretty good gauge is, are you willing to do scary things that break rules? Now? <laughs> I am not encouraging people to go break laws, by the way. But... Yeah, you know, do you push limits in your life currently? Because if you don't, you're probably a loyalist, you know? Yeah, I think that that's probably fair. If you're not willing to put yourself out on the line in any kind of debate, you probably wouldn't have joined this debate either about taxation or anything else. And with that, as we just broad swath a bunch of people listening to this podcast, (laughs) right? If everyone's thinking right now, am I a patriot? Am I a loyalist? Yeah, yeah, I broke this. One rule in third grade. I'm totally a patriot. I run red lights every once in a while. <laughs> totally a patriot. <clears throat> Josh is not admitting to running red lights. I, they're pink. It's like yellow to red. Right. You know? yeah. They're called orange, and it's totally when you're supposed to step on the gas. Right. That's Especially how traffic in Utah. Works in Utah. Here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, we digress. Yeah, we do. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump into to question one. We did not think to ask people if they were cool with us using their name and where they're from, which we'd kind of like to do. So we're not going to do that. We'll just mention that we have gotten questions from Southern California to Utah to, of course, Utah, because that's where we're coming from, uh, all the way out to uh, London, England. So it's a wide swath. And maybe next time we'll have the foresight to say, by the way, can we use your name and city? But we'll respect privacy and not mention that this time around. Yeah. So let's just jump in with this first question, which comes from all the way across my house. Um, All the way to the other room. That's right. Uh, Thanks to my daughter for sending this in. Kind of cute to think my little eight-year-old went to the website and submitted a question. Um, She would like to know, and you're welcome, sweetheart. uh, She'd like to know why we decided to launch this podcast, which I take as her basically saying, Daddy, how come you have no free time anymore? (laughs) So... I'm just going to go ahead and answer this very bluntly. And uh, I apologize if this comes across as somehow negative on higher ed. That's not my goal. I love my job. I cannot emphasize that enough. I love what I do at the university. It, it It's fulfilling. It's great. Um, what higher ed actually does, though, and what people seem to think higher ed does are different things. What I see is that at the university, I'm encouraged to stay in the ivory tower. I'm encouraged to write research articles that are on very niche topics that are meant to be read by other people like me who have a PhD in history, that have a specialty that sign that aligns with mine. Uh, and then I teach classes to people who, sure, maybe they're middle class, you know, so it's not we're talking about the 1%, but nonetheless, they are in good enough of a position in life that they can take four to five prime years out of their life and study full time. That's not a luxury that a lot of people have. And even if you have the luxury of going to college, I, I'd imagine, in fact, most listeners 
just as I'm thinking about the demographic that would probably be drawn to this sort of podcast, I, I imagine a lot of you have bachelor's degrees. Not all of you, but a lot of you probably do. All the same, you have to go to your day job now. You don't have the luxury of sitting around reading uh, philosophical books, history. Uh, you have bills to pay. So I think it's really important that we as experts with PhDs, uh, you know, we can't sit back and complain that society isn't better uh, informed on various issues if we're not coming to you after your busy, hard day and engaging you in a medium that you have the time and the ability to, to, to access. Uh, I, I'm not going to expect the average person to go get a dense history textbook and read something that's semi-jargon-filled and try and make sense of how that might better inform decisions they make it say, uh, you know, when they go to vote or you know, as they try and make sense of uh, different versions of what they're hearing about uh, different views in society. So frankly, that's why I've launched this podcast. And it's a lot of work. It's after hours because this this really isn't what I'm supposed to, you know, do during my day job. So I don't. I, I write the articles that are meant to be read by other experts and I teach the classes, um, you know, that I'm supposed to. And again, I love and enjoy that. But this is me wanting to up, you know, historical literacy and uh, historical knowledge throughout society. People who don't have the luxury of buying expensive books or taking the time to read and try and digest on their own uh, difficult terms. And I'm coming to a medium that people in the 21st century use. So I, I think that pretty much does it. Yeah, that's why we created the podcast. We want somebody to be able to get in their car on their morning commute, plug the podcast in, and basically listen and gain the knowledge. No, go ahead. Sorry, oh, no, gosh. no. And basically gain the knowledge that they would want to gain if they were had the time or means or whatever to attend class. And with that said, I wish we had a camera and could show you the amount of hours, research, fact-checking, geez, that goes into each episode, not to mention the hours we analyze the script afterwards. Yeah. Well, because the script doesn't just have to be as accurate as a textbook. And I swear to you, this podcast is as accurate as a textbook. It has to be entertaining because right. th that that's genuinely a high goal. You know, th th That's a major goal for me. I want you, the listener, to be so entertained that you're not sitting here going, oh, it's a chore. It's something that I'm trying to do to better myself. But you know, I'm exhausted. I worked all day and I don't have it in me to do that. No, I want you to think I'm going to relax. How am I going to do that? Oh, I'm going to listen to history that doesn't suck. And I'm going to freaking learn about the stamp, you know, the stamp act inadvertently almost because you're just having such a damn good time. That's the way that I, I think we can really move things along. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to go in the opposite direction of making things sound super intelligent or difficult. I want to make everything as easy and fun as possible. Uh, and that's why I make this a narrative-driven, you know, story-driven podcast. And I labor over uh, telling stories that I can weave in with the, the big main uh, picture of, uh, you know, of historical events so that you can more or less accidentally learn uh, the, the important stuff while you're just having a good time. And while being entertained eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Um... This next question is really, really good. We're really glad that this question got asked. The question is, who are the top most influential women of the revolution? And how has history remembered or slash painted them? And I think we're, we're going to toss this over to CL to kind of take the brunt of this question to start off with. Sure, sure. There are a lot of women that helped with the revolutionary cause that had a lot to do with um, moving the patriot cause forward. Uh, they don't get written about very much, and when they do get written about, they're often sidelined. But I think the first place to start is with Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mom. Sometimes, and some people have implied that she wasn't very supportive of the Patriot cause. I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't think that's as true as people think it is. Um, she was known for being stubborn. So she probably didn't like the time that went into the revolutionary cause that her sons, multiple sons and son-in-law put in. Although I'm going to go out on a limb again and say, I think she was stubborn because she was orphaned at 12 and widowed before she was 40 with five living children to take care of. The oldest of whom was 11 at the time. Is that right, Greg? Uh, right. So George was 11 at the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, because George is the oldest. Sorry, my, yes. my brain was thinking, well, but what about Lawrence? But Lawrence is from... Yeah, the, Lawrence yeah, is from, from Augustine's first wife, because Mary's, uh, you know, the second wife. Right, right. But as I said, three of her sons and one of her sons-in-law served in the Virginia militia, and George served as the everything, the general of the army, the president of the United States, she was supportive of that. Um, and I think that it's important to honor her contribution. Well, and so on her death, right, right as George is going in, into the, the, the presidency, I mean, they've had a rough relationship, these two. Right. But despite that rough relationship, it's interesting to see that, uh, one, George is heartbroken. So there's clearly a deep love on his side, despite the, and come on, if you're being honest, right? Can't we all kind of relate to that? Someone that maybe uh, is a family relation or a friend, someone who's been in your life that you don't quite jive with all the time, or maybe even most of the time you don't, but it doesn't mean you don't love deeply. And I, I get the impression that was the case because on Mary's side, George doesn't need things, right? I mean, Mount Vernon is this massive freaking multi-plantation by this point. He's the freaking president of the new United States, uh, the rock star of the era, hands down. Yeah. She leaves him the majority of her estate. Right. I mean, she's playing favorites. So yeah. for all the complaining, sorry, I don't want to hijack. You're totally fine. Keep, keep going. But I, I just think that's such a fascinating example of, there's a bond there. I mean, George clearly wasn't pissed at her for how things went down. Right. And she's clearly proud of who he is and what he's become, what he's done with his life. So um, I think she's a really interesting woman. And if you are more interested in her and have more questions about her, I'd recommend looking her up. The next person I think we should definitely talk about would be Martha Custis Washington, George Washington's wife. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. She is a fascinating, fascinating woman. She took on... I don't think she knew what she was taking on when she married George. <laughs> I, I really don't no. think she knew what she was getting into. Um, she loved her family. And let's be clear about that. She loved being a mother. She loved being a grandmother. She raised her four children, none of whom lived, well, three of whom didn't live to adulthood and one who lived to adulthood and then died leaving a widow and four children. She then went on to raise 
two, his two youngest, Jackie's two youngest kids, uh, lived with her and George when they lived in New York and Philadelphia when he was president. Um, Martha visited George every winter and then every spring went back home and took care of her family. And then every winter wintered with George all through the war. It's a pretty amazing. Take that in. Yeah. That's take that in. It's pretty amazing how supportive she was of him and how supportive she was of the cause. She was really good friends with, um, Lucy Knox, who's Henry Knox's wife. She became really good friends with Abigail Adams um, as her husband served as president and Which is Abigail, super useful when that bromance never happened. Well, I yeah, she, no, she really never, paved the yeah. way with a lot of those cabinet members that did not get along. She really paved the way and smoothed things over for them to work together because she kept the family friendships alive. Exactly. She set up a great example of what it was to be the first lady um, she didn't come to New York right away. So George comes to New York and starts being the president. She's still taking care of stuff at home. And when she gets to New York, the house is a mess. There's no time for him to get his work done. There's no decent schedule. There's no decent family life. There's no time for people to come and visit. She sets up state dinners that they hold weekly. In addition to tea parties that she holds for important ladies in town that George is invited to in order to help him have a better public persona. You know, what's fun about that. George liked the tea parties. So he also had what he called a a levee with, uh, with men once a week. He way preferred the The tea tea parties than hanging out with the guys. He did. And I think it went a long way to helping people think he he was more human to humanizing him because they saw how he was with his wife and how he was with his wife's friends and got to know him a little bit better, whereas at the state dinners and at the um, afternoon visits that they would do once a week for men, he was very formal, almost never talked. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I like Martha. I like her a lot. She's a pretty great example of what it is to support a cause in the background and, and never ask for any credit. Well, and, you know, she, she takes a little bit of grief from some people in terms of comparing her to other first ladies. Yeah which I think is kind of BS. Um, it's unfair. She's un- she's charting a uncharted path. Exactly. I mean, yeah. we, we talk about how George Washington, you know, I mean, we've emphasized that in the, epi- in, the, in the episode, in all the episodes, he's constantly in positions where he's cutting, uh, you know, he, he's the trailblazer. Yeah. Well, so is his wife. I mean, there's no precedent for what it means to be first lady. Um, so, you know, to compare her to, geez, Jackie or whomever. Yeah. It's really unfair. It's really unfair. And she set up quite a few things. Um, She set herself up rather than as a queen, as a hostess. And no one knew what they were walking into. And to set herself up as a hostess of a public house where people were welcome was a huge task, especially she was not young when they became president when George became president. She was not a young woman and she was raising two of her grandkids. She could have easily sidelined and said, I don't want to do this. I'll just go home. Thanks. Call me in four years. (laughs) (laughs) You got this, George. (laughs) Which honestly I might've done. I'll write you every week, darling. Right. (sighs) Hey, I mean, Mount Vernon, I can think of worse places, um, to, uh, to set up shop. Oh, right. Right. For sure. But no, move to some, you know, Move on up to New York, someplace that Congress is, is yeah. willing to pay for. Right. Find a rental. Yep. Good luck. Have everyone over all the time. It'll be great. You'll love it. So <laughs> Martha's a very interesting woman. And I, I, I really loved getting to know her. So we don't have time to mention all of my favorite Patriot women. So I'll just mention a few that you can look up. Mercy Otis Warren. She was fantastic. Sybil Ludington. She's known as the female Paul, Paul Revere. And she's amazing. Yeah, she's awesome. Nancy Morgan Hart is fantastic. The stories on her are absolutely amazing. But my favorite patriot would be Esther Reed. She's actually English, but she marries an American, moves to uh, the colonies pretty soon after the revolution starts. And when she gets to Philadelphia, she sees the need that the soldiers are in. She sees 
that they need supplies and clothes and food. And she starts a group called the Ladies Association of Philadelphia. They go door to door, raising about $300,000 in colonial dollars, Mm -hmm. which today would be about $7,500. And they use the money to buy supplies and sew over 2,000 shirts for soldiers. She also wrote an awesome propaganda essay called The Sentiments of the American Woman, in which she encouraged women to step up and be patriotic and encouraged them that they were equal to men in patriotism and that they could contribute to the cause. So she's kind of fantastic. She actually died in the middle of the war in 1780 um, of a fever. But other women followed her example, set up similar associations in their states, and Sarah Franklin Bach, the daughter of Ben Franklin, took over Esther's movement after she died and made sure that it moved on. Way better than that illegitimate son of Ben's, who's freaking loyalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no offense to our to British do. listeners. <laughs> yeah, those women were, they were kind of amazing. They saw a need and they filled it right away. And then, I mean, kind of to put like a... Geez, just attribute something to the faceless women of the revolution. Just like we have thousands of of uh, broke colonial men who fought and died and weren't taken care of after they'd sacrificed to create this country. You have women who did the same thing. Uh, camp right. followers, these women who are, uh, I don't know how many people remember this, but back when George first takes over the, the Continental Army, if you can call it that, in... Uh, you know, 1775 in Cambridge, these guys won't wash their clothes. They're getting sick because they won't do freaking chores because that's women's work. Well, ridiculous. I know if you imagine you're, you're basically going to die because you're such a man. Um, <laughs> anyhow, you know, if it weren't for women being the camp followers who did those sorts of tasks, then, uh, geez, that the that, army would have fallen yeah. apart. And let's not forget, women were camp followers in the British army as well. And they were spies for George. Right. Come on. That's, uh, that's awesome. That's freaking awesome. You know, always, you can always count on the, I don't know, I guess the wealthy, the hooked up to kind of forget that the help are listening. Right. That's like the premise of every upstairs, downstairs. Yes. Thing. Right. Okay. Next question. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So if Von Steuben was one of the unsung heroes, who else do you find noteworthy of the same descriptor and why? Who, who wants to start? So I think we could all take a just a brief moment to maybe yeah. tell ours. Um, yeah, I'll start because freaking let me tell you, gentlemen and ladies, about <laughs> Samuel Whitmore. This dude is the biggest badass of all time. Um, I won't go into super details because of time, but imagine an 80-year-old man, okay, Battle Lexington and Concord. He hears this is going down, okay? He is a veteran of many wars, definitely the Seven Years' War. Can we say that war more in this podcast? My I gosh. Know. Like so many people are probably thinking, I didn't even know that was a war before this podcast. And now they're like, oh, Seven Years' War again. Sure. Anyway, so he grabs all his old gear, okay, for this battle, Lexington and Concord. Grabs his rifle. He's got dual-wielding pistols and his sword. He he runs. <laughs> he's like a pirate. <laughs> he's he's like a pirate. He's eighty. I want to. He's eighty freaking years old. He's eighty years old. He's running, okay, from his house. Runs to the battle, and he gets in this position on, but kind of by the road, and all the other patriots are like, "What the hell are you doing? Get back into cover." He's like, "No, no, no, I got this." He's flying solo, lone wolf, okay. He's hiding behind a rock. I'm totally taking this story and maybe exaggerating <laughs> it, but it's awesome. And uh, so the the column of British come up the hill or come up the road. And he jump, jumps up from behind the rock, shoots his rifle, kills a, a British instantly, throws his rifle down, pulls both his dual wielding pistols out, <laughs> runs down the hill, shoots both his pistols, kills two more British. And then when he realizes I'm not going to have time to reload any of my guns, he whips his sword out and just starts going to town. Oh my God. <clears throat> Takes a musket blunt force to the face. So he gets shot in the face, um, rips through kind of his, his mouth, falls to the ground, and then he's stabbed 13 times. He's bayoneted 13 times. And the British move on. The battle ends and all his patriots come to get his body because they're like, the dude's dead. 
He's freaking alive. He's freaking alive. He's behind the rock. He's trying to load his musket, okay? Um, they end up taking him into town. The doctor, he's like, this guy's a dead cause. There's no reason. Right. His family, they say, please, will you just bandage him up? We'll take him home so he can die at home. They bandage him up. They take him home. The dude lives. <laughs> he lives. He's a rock star. Bayoneted 13 times, shot in the face. He lives not just like one more year. He lives, sorry, 18 more years. What? Yeah. He dies at <laughs> 98. Anyway, Samuel Whitmore, everybody. Unsung yeah. hero. I mean, he didn't like turn a big tide of the battle or anything, but it just goes to show you the dude's a patriot through and through. Shoot. CL? I hate to say it, but I really do like all of the big rock stars that we talk about in every episode. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And I don't think I have an unsung hero that I love, although I do love Henry Knox. Yeah. He is amazing. But to me, he's kind of a big name. Am I wrong? Well, I, I think by this point, he feels like a big name for people who've been listening to the podcast. But honestly, I'd say in the average... Common knowledge. You know, yeah, stuff, common yeah. knowledge. I mean, if, if you're not George Washington, Ben Franklin, or Thomas Jefferson, well, and since Lin-Manuel came around, Alexander Hamilton. Right, right. Um, you, no, you're you're forgotten. You're you're an unknown. Because Henry Knox is kind of amazing. He's a patriot right from the beginning, and General Gage actually says to him, uh, well, threatens publicly that if he tries to leave Boston after Boston has been occupied, he'll be arrested. So he and his wife Lucy decide to flee in the night. She sews his sword into her cape so that if he's arrested. He's still armed. Yeah, they were kind of amazing people. He goes on to do some pretty crazy stuff. Learned a lot of his military uh, tactics and stuff from books. And George saw that and put him in a leadership role. Anyway. Man. Well, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to sort of give two answers, if uh, if you will. Um, so there is a little bit of uh, question as to as to who it was, but whichever African-American it was at, because it, it probably was one of two um, at the Battle of Bunker Hill that shot uh, Major Picairn, killed him. Come on, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I also think of um, Prince, uh, Prince Easterbrooks, who was the African-American that was shot or injured. I shouldn't say shot. I'm not quite sure what his injury was, but um, who was a casualty at Lexington. I mean, th these guys are often overlooked. Um, but to kind of swing around to another bigger person, as you're saying, CL, uh, Nathaniel Green. Oh, he's amazing. Come on. He crushed it in the South after back to back uh, armies, you know, losing two freaking continental armies getting beat from uh, Ben Lincoln uh, to Horatio Gates, right? The. Uh, <laughs> Um, George's nemesis, essentially. And then Nathaniel Green brilliantly uses these underpaid, ragged, don't even have shoes, uh, you know, soldiers to lead Lord Cornwallis on a wild goose chase and wear him down until he finally decides to go up into Virginia. It, come on. That dude's awesome. But yeah. how many people think about Nathaniel Green when you think about the revolution? That's true. Right. I know. Okay. okay, so the next question is, is it true that Spain provided some support in a similar way to, he's referencing to the Haitians in this question, by using... Which was, let's just clarify, episode 11, Southern Discomfort, right, when we talked about the Haitian soldiers, well, French, if you will, right. right, but black French soldiers from today, Haiti, going up, come on, this is such a crazy French global subjects. war, right? Anyhow, sorry, Josh. No, you're fine. That's a good caveat. Um, by using subjects of their own colonies, namely Cuba and Puerto Rico. Should I take the bread on this question, I guess? Yes, uh, given your background, uh, are you going to answer this one in Spanish or do you want to keep yeah. it in English? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do Spanish. Okay. Entonces, he, no, I'm not going to do Spanish, obviously. Um, no, this is a really great question. Spain, for some reason, seems to kind of get overlooked as we look at the Revolutionary War. Not that they played a massive role, but they did play a pretty big role. Yeah, they're significant. Um, so to answer your question, just straight off, yes, they did. Um, Cuba actually from Havana starting out, they have a bunch of observers that go to the colonies and meet with George Washington and members of Congress. 
And they kind of figure out like what's going on, how are they supporting the war monetary wise. And they basically get involved from the war after talking with George Washington there. Puerto Rico, soldiers from Puerto Rico, they fight in multiple wars in the Southern camp or battles, sorry, in the Southern campaign. They fight in Baton Rouge, um, the siege of Pensacola in Florida. So they're kind of all over the place <clears throat> helping out mostly in the Southern campaign though. Right. I think, I think that's something that we need everybody to understand. Well, and I do think it's important to, again, remember that Spain is not an ally of the United States. It's an awkward situation, but Spain is an ally of France, which of course is the ally of the United, United States. States. Uh, and Spain isn't, um, it's not interested in really helping the United States as much as it is moving forward its own, uh, its own agenda, which of course that's France too, right? Just France fulfills that agenda by actually aligning with the U.S., whereas Spain, since it has American colonies, it's in a little bit of a, con- a conflicted situation. I think it'd be safe to say, too, that Spain definitely had an agenda yeah. during the war. As did France, yeah. True. Um, but I, I think what I, I guess I'm trying to get at is, nonetheless, Spain pursuing, kind of piggybacking on the uh, American uh, independence, you know, well, on its effort for independence, um, provides a, what we would call a positive externality, you know, that's helping the United States, even though it's not directly aligned. Because every Spanish soldier fighting the British is that's just one fewer British soldiers or British armies that can be in the 13 colonies because they're busy over in what would today be Louisiana and you know, Florida and so forth. And to kind of give a brief example of this complex of France is our ally, but Spain is France's ally, but not our ally, but not our ally. Yeah. Um, the French needed money. Uh, specifically kind of to bankroll. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Yeah, bankroll. I think so. It depends on what you're going to keep saying. It depends on what I'm going to say. The Battle of Yorktown. And so as France needs money, they go to Spain, who goes to Cuba, and they do... (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, One of their colonies. And basically all these... I'm summing the story up, but they do these notices to Mm -hmm. the public. And within, I think it says, uh, basically hours... Yeah, half a day, basically. They get f- the equivalent of 500,000 Spanish pesos. They take those and deliver those to France to pay for the soldiers for Yorktown. So Spain's definitely there. They're kind of in the background, but they're actually paying for some pretty significant battles vicariously. Through, yeah, indirectly. Indirectly yeah. through France. It's like a f- massive three, four-point bank shot playing pool, but, you know... It's important. It's uh, it's indirect assistance that is vital at, at the end of the day. And so to answer your question, yes, Puerto Rico and Cuba, both soldiers from there. And actually later, uh, Puerto Rican soldiers who stayed in the United States, they will later uh, fight in the Civil War. I do just want to add uh, the reason I threw that to Josh made a joke about him answering it in Spanish. Uh, his uh, His capstone for his bachelor's degree is focused on uh, Mexican history. Josh speaks fluent Spanish. He also speaks some indigenous languages uh, in Mexico. Nahuatl. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nahuatl. Some. It, just, just Nahuatl. You're just, only, only trilingual. Just right? Nahuatl. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the uh, Latin America is definitely Josh's domain. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, next next question. Oh, and this is a, such a good one to end on. What was George Washington's religion? All right. Yeah, so this is fun. Um, I kind of want to expand this a little bit because, 
you'll hear people uh, today um, on, on one side, you'll hear people say that the founding fathers were all uh, super Christian and religious. And then on the other side, you, you hear people who kind of want to uh, basically depict them as not being religious because they're all men of the enlightenment. And the fact is, if you're cherry picking, you can get either, uh, you, you can kind of run with either version because both are kind of true. So when you look at the mass conglomerate of founding fathers that include, if we, if we can put it this way, the B-listers, Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to like put down their efforts and contributions, but this is definitely a uh, a a Jesus crowd, you know, hands down. Um, However, if you want to look at the A-listers, people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Jefferson. Let me just pick on Jefferson for a second. We're getting to the original question. Jefferson went through his New Testament. And freaking ripped out the miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, oh you can God, get really? on Google Books if you want to and, and read it. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Uh, he didn't change the, not that I'm aware of uh, the translations, though maybe he he looked at that. I'm not sure. Um, because he believed that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus was a person worth you know, emulating and so forth. Uh, he did not believe that, you know, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. He did not believe that Jesus, uh, you, you know, enabled the the lame to walk, the blind to see, raised Lazarus from the dead, and himself was resurrected. Uh, so yeah, he that's how Jefferson rolled. Uh, so getting to Washington, he also is a deist, and that term simply means it's someone who, who believes that there's basically a, a great power out there, that there is a god or, or some sort of yeah, there's a there's a there's the a supreme for? being. Thank yes. you, supreme being. But he doesn't intervene in human life. Yeah. So the the go to example of this that's been used for geez, I don't know. I remember hearing this in multiple classes as I was learning about uh, this belief system in, within the Enlightenment or belief system. This ideology. This idea, it's yeah. not like this is a religion. Let, let's be clear on that. Um, but uh, God or the supreme being is considered like a clockmaker, someone who's made a clock. Now the clock just does its thing, and the clockmaker doesn't come to intervene and you know and, and help. So that's where Washington uh, falls in. I mean, you know, you're going to hear him um, use language that invokes a, a higher being because again, he doesn't reject that idea, um, and he does go to church with his wife. Yes, Martha was Episcopalian; she was devout, but George. Just went with Martha. <laughs> he wasn't Support, getting a lot I'm, out of I'm, the sermon. Supportive hubs. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's the only guy who's ever gone to church because his wife. Oh yeah, him. yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. It's it's a good American tradition, really. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a patriot, you know, you know. <laughs> so you know that's that's where George falls. Um, you know, definitely not someone who is uh, like against religion or or. or I mean, I remember reading a letter once. Oh, I wish I had it in front of me now. But um, he did make some comment about the heathens, uh, which if that sounds like, oh, how insensitive of him, it's the freaking 18th century. Um, right. You know, so clearly, I mean, at least as I read it, this is a reference to people who wouldn't be Christian. I, I think if you pushed him, he'd probably, well... I don't know. I guess it'd depend on public persona, what he's trying to yeah. go for. But deist, the, the short answer is deist. He believes in a supreme being. He's not going to go much further than that on his personal beliefs, even if, you know, you'll find him in the pews when when the missus is around. Right. And I think it's important to dispel a myth about George Washington. A lot of people have heard that after he um, finished his swearing in, he added the words, so help me God, to his oath. This is a Victorian fable. It's just not true. It's about the same time the cherry tree stuff came up. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Those those Victorians, they, they loved to romanticize. Yes, the George, huh? <laughs> yes, they did. Just like, let's rewrite this guy. Yeah. Also, axes trees at five or whatever. <laughs> yeah, neither yeah. one of those things happened. No. So George was a literalist when it came to the Constitution. He read the swearing in verbatim. Verbatim. He did not mess with the wordage there, and there aren't any um, people who actually witnessed his swearing in that said, oh, yes, and then he added, so help me God. That comes about 100 years later. Mm-hmm. And that's classic for historians. So the the actual records, we call that a primary source. 
because we're getting basically, you know, if you're familiar with the expression straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah. So when we don't see that in any of the primary sources, but then it just magically appears like a century later. You're like, that's what? Exactly. We're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. BS. It, it didn't happen. So, um, God, I feel like there was something else I was gonna add. Oh, just that Deus really avoided the word God. So you'll see that as well. If, if you decide to start reading a lot of George's letters or writings or whatever, he's always seeing things like the Supreme being or the almighty, uh, providence. providence. Oh, Providence, dude. That uh, is look up. You should look capital up his, P, his inaugural address. Mm-hmm. You'll see Providence in there. You'll see um, Almighty Being. Yeah, he'll never say, uh, yeah, God, or at least not frequently. I, I at least in a public. I don't know setting. if I'm going to quite. Yeah, go so far as to say like you'll never find him use the word God, but it's like you know if we're talking about his top ten ways to refer to. The big chief. <laughs> I know I'm just purposely trying to come up with different ways. Uh, you know, God's going to be pretty low. I don't know if it's going to make the top 10. So if we were playing Family Feud with with George, ways to refer to God, <laughs> don't go with the word God. Go God. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not going to work for you. All right. Well, hey, I think I think that does. Uh, that's that's basically most geez. of the questions. Yeah. I apologize to uh, those. Uh, there there are still a few questions. Jeez, this episode. Uh, we, as always, we want to keep things under an hour. So I apologize to those of you who we we didn't get to. We will, you know, we'll be in touch with you though. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we can't say that enough. You you make me happy when I look at my very. I don't, I hope it doesn't come across as scary, you know, just the analytics that show downloads. Uh, again, I don't have anyone's home address or anything. Um, you know, and as I just think to myself, more people have a better understanding of how the United States came into existence. Uh, seriously, this is so fulfilling for me. And I will just add lastly, as we said, all the amount, you know, the hours we pour in, into making this thing, uh, we do have some concern that we're going to have to slow down simply because we have we have a poverty of time. None of us are crying poverty. It's a poverty of time. Nonetheless, with your support, we can replace <laughs> how H- we pay. Help us buy time. Yeah, how, how we pay our bills, basically. Um, because we, we just, we don't have any more free time left to give. Literally, it's gone. It's It's toast. So uh, if you'd please consider even just a dollar Patreon subscription uh, a day, a day. Whew, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> Please, yes. Yeah, a you know, hey, yeah, do that. <laughs> dollar a day. Uh, but, you know, uh, just a, a dollar a month. Um, you know, you you help us keep this going and hopefully not have to take any breaks. I'm trying so hard for to make sure we avoid that, but I, God, I don't know if that's going to happen. And then to add an addendum onto what Greg just said, thank you so much for those who do support us and those who listen. Oh, yeah. We actually um, have kind of a cool announcement. We just hit 10,000 downloads. That's right. Podcast. And all 50 states all have listened. 50 states. I mean, it's like one guy in South Dakota who I think has listened to one episode. But hey, thanks for finally getting on board, South Dakota. That's right. Yeah. So thank you. We're so grateful that you're valid. There's some validation going yeah. on for all our hard work. It's scary when you launch something like this and think like, who's even going to listen besides my mom? Right. Thanks for listening, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and please keep the feedback coming. If you... This will always be a free podcast, but yes. with that said, please let us know what you like, what you don't like. Give us feedback, what you want to hear more of, or we want to tailor this to you. But I, I will also add, you know, I do have something of an agenda. We are going to walk you through U.S. history. It's right. going to continue to be funny. It's going to be narrative-driven um, you know, in common vernacular, you know, common language that everyone can follow. But as we hit those stories, we're going to weave in all the important things that you need to know. I mean, I, I'd say you're, you know more than 90% of the American population about the revolution at this point. If you've listened mm-hmm. to every episode, you're, you're like basically a freaking scholar compared to 9 out of 10 people around the globe in yeah. the United States. Yeah, I totally agree with that statement. So, I do too. I think we're good. Yeah. I think that's it. Oh, and next time, just so you know, right, we always tell you what we're going to do next time. Um, we are, I'm going to give you just an overview. So we're going to get back to normal stories. All right. That's totally coming because things are still awesome and exciting. Just because the revolution is over doesn't mean that <laughs> things are going to calm down. We're going to build up to a civil war, people. So that's coming. But 
Um, just in case you might have gotten lost uh, in, in terms of you know seeing the, the the forest from the trees, in terms of what the big picture issues are in the revolution, because sometimes maybe the stories are cool and interesting, but maybe you're catching, say, John Hancock uh, losing his ship and Boston Massacre breaking out, you might have lost some of the details on the tax crisis that launched that whole thing. So I'm just going to give you a breakdown overview real quick that if you've listened to all the last you know, what is it? 15, 16 episodes? 15. Yeah, man. Um, You know, you're going to listen to that and just be like, I'm a rock star. I grasp everything he's talking about. Don't worry. I'll still keep it, you know, (laughs) light-ish in terms of the way I word things, you know. Anyhow, okay, I think we're done. I think so. All right. Join me in two weeks where I'd like to tell you a story. History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Special guest, Professor Ben Sawyer. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. My gratitude to your kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Anthony Pizzullo. Art Lane, Beth M. Chris Jansen, Bev Hawkins, Bill Thompson, Bob Drazovich, Brad Herman, Brian Goodson, Carrie Bagoli, Charles and Shirley Clendenden, Chris Mendoza, Christopher McBride, Christopher Merchant, Christopher Pullman, Dane Polson, David Aubrey, David DeFazio, David Rifkin, Benke, Durante Spencer, Donald Moore, Ernie Lowe, Gareth Griffin, Henry Brunges, Jacob McDaniel, Jake Gilbreth, James Black, Janie McCreary, Jeffrey Moots, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Popic, Joe Dobis, Joel Kerr, John Frugal Dougal, John Booby, John Keller, John Oliveros, John Rudlevich, John Schaefer, John Sheff, Jordan Corbett, Justin M. Spriggs, Karen Bartholomew, Kim R., Kyle Decker, Lawrence Neubauer, Linda Cunningham, Mark Ellis, Mark Price, Matthew Mitchell, Matthew Simmons, Melanie Jan, Nick Sikender, Noah Hoff, Paul Goinger, Reese Humphreys Wadsworth, Rick Brown, Sarah Trawick, S.B. Wave, Sean Peppard, Sharon Thiessen, Sean Baines, The Creepy Girl, Tisha Black, and Zach Jackson. Join me in two weeks, where I'd like to tell you a story.